actually, uh, you know, the debate seems to be God versus evil, and I just want you to know that I'm not officially here representing evil. Um, it's, uh, uh, so, uh, on the other hand, neither am I here to promote dogmatic atheism. I, I, uh, I don't want to be a cause of your coming to such a belief. What, what I hope to do here is not so much give you arguments that will compel you to agree with me, but rather to encourage you to take responsibility for your own thinking and then provide some considerations which I think will lead you, if you're impartial, to think that God probably doesn't exist. Um, so I'm, I'm a little worried that, uh, that Dr. Craig actually won't have anything to rebut when, I, when he comes to rebut me, but uh, we'll see. Um, I shall be arguing that other things being equal, the pain and suffering in the world, make belief in God unreasonable. Uh, in order to, to do that, I need to talk a little bit about who or what God is and what it is to be a reasonable belief. Uh, let me start with the first topic. Um, the word God's proper name, and it's also a common noun. Proper name like Lassie, common noun like dog. As a proper name, it purports to pick out an individual person and so, just like the word Lassie can pick out lots of different actual dogs, the word God could theoretically pick out lots of different potential persons. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, which one of those persons are, is being picked out by the term? Um, now, because I don't think there is a person that is picked out by that term, this isn't a concern so much that I have, but I don't want to be arguing for a kind of God that is different from the one that Dr. Craig is arguing for, because otherwise we'll be arguing across purposes. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the, the word God as a common noun. It, it names a kind of being. Um, I think it's the kind of being that there could only be one of, if uh, there was any at all, which I don't think there is. Um, and, but I want it to be clear that I think that there are different God concepts that we could be thinking of, and that depending on what concept we had of God, um, our relationship to, to, to the problem of evil will be quite different. If, for example, we believe that God is vengeful, then we might not be so concerned about evil uh, as if we thought that God was necessarily uh, a completely good being. Uh, maybe I should let these people come in and sit down. Um, I, actually, I want to make the, the following claim. Uh, I think it's a conceptual truth. That not an empirical truth, because I think the concept of God is empty, but I think it's a conceptual truth about the concept of God, that no, no being could be God unless God were infinite uh, in its perfections. Um, and in, indeed, if God could not be God unless there not only was infinite, but there could not even be conceivably a being that were, that were greater. And those perfections have to include goodness, power, and knowledge, at least in the traditional conception of God. Accordingly, if God exists, then God is, first of all, a being who would know about any evil which might exist, would be a God who could repair or prevent any evil, what wasn't logically impossible to prevent or repair, uh, and would be a being that would not allow any evil to exist unless a greater good depended on its existence in a way which was morally permissible. So if God exists, there can't be any evil unless that evil is A, such that it's logically impossible for God to prevent, repair, or remove it, and B, morally required in the sense of being necessary to a greater good in a morally permissible way. 
Let's call such evil morally permissible or morally necessary evil. Okay? Now, I take it that Dr. Craig will be arguing that there is evil. I mean, it would be foolish to deny that there is evil in the world, but that all the evil that there is is morally necessary for some reason or another. Um, now, I think uh, Dr. Craig thinks the term God refers to an actual being uh, and one whose properties extend beyond the mere conceptual truth that God has to be infinite in his perfections. Um, I suspect that Dr. Craig believes that, for example, um, God is a person, a loving personal being who made us and made the world that we live in. I shall also assume that God has created the world, at least in part for our well-being, um, and that God's good intentions for us are exhibited in the structure and design of the world. Um, now, I think this is only one of the po possible theological hypotheses, but I take it that this is one that is reasonable to believe that Dr. Craig holds. So let's just call this, for convenience, the God hypothesis, even though there could be many such, okay, and that would be different than this one. So on the God hypothesis, uh, God is not only infinitely perfect, but God has created a world more or less for our benefit, not maybe entirely for our benefit, but at least in part for our benefit. Um, now, the traditional argument from evil just flows immediately from these conceptual truths about God. Um, it just starts with the conceptual point that God's, uh, God's nature is such that there could be no morally unnecessary evil, and then it adds the empirical premise that there is morally unnecessary evil. You know, volcanoes explode and children are burned to death and uh, all kinds of things like that. And uh, since uh, these facts are inconsistent with God's existence, God doesn't exist. And I think, I mean, the, the argument from evil is very simple, it's straightforward, it's just a footnote to God's nature. Um, as an analogy, I think we can think of the world, uh, which on the God hypothesis is the product of God's agency and making, um, as comparable to a cake made by a baker. Right? If the cake uh, tastes bad, um, if there's a defect in the cake, it's got too much salt or not enough sugar, we blame the baker. We say the baker is incompetent or used the wrong recipe or made a mistake or forgot to add the salt or whatever it was. Um, but the problem is, you know, in, in the theological case, is that uh, none of these options are available in the, in the case for God. God can't make any mistakes. God can't forget anything. God will never use a bad recipe. Um, and so, by hypothesis, God can't be a bad cook. Um, so either God didn't make the cake, or the apparent defects in the cake, the apparent evil in the world, um, are really hidden virtues. You could imagine a low-fat cake, and it doesn't taste as sweet as you'd like, but it's better for your health, or something like that. So the, the, uh, the, the evil in the world has to be, in some sense, not an evil. I mean, it is an evil, but it has to be an evil that is... Uh, morally necessary, required for the greater good of the world. Um, now, this is actually, I think, a pretty tall order. Uh, I mean, given how horrible uh, the evil and suffering in the world is, it's a it's pretty big stretch to imagine that all of it should be morally required and morally necessary. That it should be actually logically impossible that God eliminate it all. Now, there are traditional responses to the problem of evil, and I'll leave them all to Dr. Craig, because... Uh, he has to have something to say, um, and no doubt he will. Um, so let me spend a minute talking about the alternative hypothesis, um, because uh, I'm not arguing for what I'm going to call the God hypothesis or the G hypothesis. Let, let me talk about the A hypothesis or the atheistic hypothesis. And of course, there are many such. There's not a single one, and so let me try to delineate some common properties that I want to defend. 
Um, on the, uh, the A hypothesis, the atheist hypothesis, uh, it's not A because it comes first, but just A for, because it, the word atheist begins with A. Um, the world is not the product of intelligent making. Okay? Uh, therefore, it cannot be expected in its structure to show purpose, um, particularly purpose which includes the destiny of human beings. Um, if a volcano blows up, one has no motive to think this must have something to do with the moral state of the people who are buried by the lava, for example. Um, the world is just the product of natural causes, um, uh, and although everything that occurs it will have a causal explanation, not everything that happens in it will have a reason, if by reason one means the kind of thing which is a reason for action. I mean, if we think of the world as being made by God, then the world has to be such that it's the product of a making, and there's a reason that it was made, and everything in it could be said to be intended. Now, we don't intend everything that's a consequence of our actions because we have limited minds and we have limited powers. But God is infinite in both wisdom and power, and therefore, everything about the world is intended. Okay? No accidents at all. Now, so from the point of view uh, that I want to endorse, uh, the only kind of reasons there are in the world are the kind of reasons that human beings have for things. Now, maybe dogs and cats have reasons for things, but those are reasons in a kind of metaphorical sense. Reasons are reasons for acting, and only agents who can act have reasons, and therefore volcanoes exploding don't have reasons, and so on. That sounds like I'm half done. Um, now, on, on the account that I want to endorse, furthermore, empirical knowledge is the product of uh, unconstrained convergence on agreement through uh, methods which just as it turns out are ones which converge on the truth. Um, it's not uh, a priori certain what kinds of methods will do that and a big part of our history, particularly the Enlightenment, was the filtering of various kinds of methods to produce ones which produced empirical truths that, that were objective in the sense that anyone could be expected to get the same result if they did the relevant experiments, um, assuming it was experimental knowledge. Um, now, on the account that I want to endorse, the religious view that's, that's the product of the God hypothesis is a pre-enlightenment view, a view that, that emerged before um, scientific knowledge really took off, and it purports to be an empirical story about the way the world is, but it really isn't. Um, it's more a structure of interpretation of the world. Uh, this may sound kind of tedious, and I'll get back to this in due course, which I, I won't have time to talk a lot about this, because there's some other things I want to say. But here's the point that I want to make to, I want to get to. If the God hypothesis is true, then the world will contain all sorts of features that it won't have if it's not the product of purposeful making. Thus, we can't compare the choice between the religious hypothesis and the non-religious hypothesis as here's the common world that we agree on, do we add God or do we subtract God? In fact, if you add God, everything is different. If you subtract God, everything is different. Um, in the G world, the world that has God in it, everything that happens has a reason. Everything that happens is a, has a purpose. The world is full of signs and portents and meanings. Every purely natural event has a reason why it occurred. Right. And it's a reason it has to do with the destiny of human beings. Um, it's a world in which if there's an injustice, that injustice is repaired or balanced. There is no evil. It isn't balanced in some way or another. If a natural disaster strikes, people are, are paid or benefited later on in some way. 
to make things morally better. Um, but the A world, the atheist world, has no such structure. The world is not a structure of moral connectedly, morally connected facts and reasons. It's just a world that happens. Um, if the volcano blows up, it's just a fact. Right? Now, there are purposes in the world, but they're human purposes. Or if dolphins have purposes, if, they have sent, if they're sentient beings, then they're dolphin purposes. But purposes are, are only there for sentient beings. I mean, I think Dr. Craig and I agree on that, but the difference is, is that he thinks that the world is the product of the making of a sentient being, namely the infinite one, God. Now, this leads me to a more fundamental point than the problem of evil itself. It isn't just evil that's an embarrassment to the atheist. Um, it isn't just the, the fact that bad things happen. Um, the G world is full of, if, if you like, inappropriate goods as well. The world is full of purposes when there really aren't any there. Um, since the G world is a world in which sufferings are repaid, um, and it's the best, of, in a sense, it has to be the best of all possible worlds. Um, not only is, is, are things going to be, are morally, let's put it this way, not only are there going to be only morally required evils, but there are going to be all sorts of goods that are human-related as well. Apples will exist because they're good for human nutrition, and so on. Um, from an atheist point of view, that stuff just doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's not just evil that's a problem from the atheist point of view. The very importation of purposes to the entire structure of the world is what is problematic. Um, now I'm beginning to run out of time. Um, so let me just say a few quick things about reasonable beliefs. Pretty clearly the problem of evil doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove that God exists, doesn't exist. Um, because uh, what it's reasonable to conclude uh, will depend upon the beliefs that you already have. Let me give you an example. If you tell me that my daughter was on Broadway yesterday and you saw her and said hello to her, I would normally believe you if I thought you were a reliable witness. But given the fact that I know that she's moved to Victoria and I talked to her on the phone yesterday, it's very unlikely that she would have been on Broadway yesterday and therefore I would be very unlikely to believe you. Not because I wouldn't think you were a reliable witness, but because your claim was just incompatible, or at least very likely incompatible, with things that I have strong reason to believe are true. Similarly, if you told me that five people you know believe that the chemistry building is, is haunted, um, my disposition to believe you will depend very strongly um, on whether or not I believe in ghosts, whether or not I take the hypothesis seriously at all. So accordingly, I want to concede immediately that someone who believes that she's met God or has God in her heart or something like that is not going to be moved in the slightest by any argument whatsoever that I could give. Um, now, the fact that evil isn't going to be an epistemic problem for that person, not going to be a problem for, of belief, there will be a different problem. The problem is how could there be this evil? I mean, because the evil exists and it has to be morally justifiable. Um, so, I mean, that's a different kind of problem, which I will leave to one side. Now, as far as I know, it's logically possible that God exists. I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, it's, it's impossible it could. But for all I know, human beings were put on Earth as kind of intergalactic fast food, um, you know, sort of genetically engineered snack food for the tourists that came by. And it could be that when the spaceships land, there'll be a, they'll play the, the come hither tune on their horns and we will have genetic programs such that we'll all bow down and, and go into their freezers and be cooked and eaten for food. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's possible, it's striking me very likely. Uh, um, 
And it's, it's also possible, I think, that the world is the product of an evil sort of malicious maker and who design, designs us for pain and stuff like that. That strikes me as an evil possibility. Also very unlikely, okay? I think all of these kinds of stories are very unlikely. And what I think is that unless, ooh, three minutes, I will have to hold off one part of my testimony until later. Um, unless one had the bad luck to grow up in an environment in which religious belief was just what everybody did. And so you acquired it sort of naturally the way you acquire belief in democracy or you know, that radios work for, by electricity or whatever it is that you believe for no particularly good reason. Then, I mean, unless you were predisposed, the religious hypothesis would be kind of crazy. It would be very hard to take seriously. Um, it wouldn't be hard to take seriously um, if we didn't have enormously impressive institutions of knowledge production, um, if we didn't live in a scientific world that, that can make things that are quite amazing on the basis of, of very sort of straightforward kinds of empirical investigations, if it weren't the case that we had knowledge producing institutions that do without the religious hypothesis and yet are enormously powerful, then the religious hypothesis might be plausible. But what I want to suggest is that a person who has a desire to have responsible beliefs has to go to some lengths to overcome the bad luck that they have of growing up in a religious environment um, and look at, look at these uh, issues impartially. And my suggestion is, if you do, you'll find not only that the problem of evil is a problem for belief, but that the problem of if you like, unnecessary purposes is a problem for belief. The idea that apples were designed for human well-being strikes me as just as implausible as the idea that volcanoes um, were designed to punish the wicked. Not that I want to suggest that Dr. Craig thinks that, um, although certainly some people have thought that. So. Um, let me just say one small thing, because I have exactly one minute left. Um, let me just say this, that sometimes people think that the religious hypothesis must be plausible because otherwise we couldn't explain morality. Otherwise we couldn't understand other things which aren't directly religious but are nonetheless important to us. Now I'm not going to try to argue here that one could give an account of morality without God, though I think it's obviously the case that one can. Um, there are alternative atheist hypotheses which do without meaning, which do without morality, which say that all of that stuff is impossible. I don't endorse such a view. I think that the, the power of human beings to produce uh, moral systems that, within which they can live reasonably well uh, is a kind of noble and magnificent achievement. And uh, it's good enough. We don't need it to be the case that injustices are paid in heaven or that bad things that happen to be people are balanced uh, later on. It's good enough that we know that they're bad and that they're unjust, even if we can't do anything about it. And I think I'm out of time. Okay. Thank you very much. And Dr. Craig for opening remarks. And Dr. Craig for opening remarks.
I want to begin by thanking Campus Crusade for Christ for inviting me to participate in this evening's debate. And I also want to thank uh, Professor Dayton for what I think was one of the most intelligent uh, and thoughtful presentations of the problem of evil that I have heard. The problem of suffering and evil is undoubtedly the greatest obstacle to belief in the existence of God, both for the Christian as well as for the non-Christian. Personally, when I consider the depth and the extent of evil and suffering in the world, then quite honestly, I find it hard to believe in God. Maybe we should all just become atheists. But that would be a pretty big step to take. How can we be sure that God does not exist? Maybe there's a reason why God permits all of the suffering in the world. Maybe it all fits into some sort of grand scheme of things that we can only dimly envision, if at all. How do we know? Well, as a Christian philosopher, I'm persuaded that despite the undeniable emotional impact of the problem of evil, nevertheless, as a strictly rational, intellectual problem, the problem of evil does not constitute a disproof of the existence of God. Let me explain why. First, we need to be very clear on the nature of the problem. Dr. Dayton is not saying that God and evil are logically incompatible with each other. However, he did make a couple of remarks in the opening speech that I do want to disagree with. I do not agree that God's omnipotence means that he can eliminate every evil which it is logically possible to eliminate. It is not the case that theists hold that God can create just any logically possible world. There may be logically possible worlds in which everyone always freely chooses to do the right thing. But such worlds may not be feasible for God because were he to try to create them, the creatures would in fact freely choose to do evil. And this could become, I think, very important because Dr. Dayton also made reference to this not being the best of all possible worlds. And I certainly am not going to defend that position. I do not think this is the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds would be a world in which everyone always freely chooses to do the right thing. And clearly this is not that world. But I will suggest that such a world may not be feasible for God, and that's a critical distinction. Now, Dr. Dayton is saying that given the evil in the world, it's improbable that God exists. He says, all things being equal, it is unreasonable to believe that God exists. Now, here a number of things need to be said. Number one, evil does not suffice to render God's existence improbable. Evil does not suffice to render God's existence improbable. This is because probabilities are relative to background information. And I notice that Dr. Dayton agrees with this in his speech. He says, I'm only maintaining that uh, it is unreasonable to believe in God, all things being equal. But if you have different beliefs in your background set of beliefs, then it might not be a problem for you to believe in God. So the question is, when somebody says God's existence is improbable, you need to immediately ask yourself the question, improbable with respect to what? Improbable with respect to all the evil and suffering in the world? Well, if that's all you consider for your background information, then I would hardly be surprised that God's existence would appear improbable relative to that alone. But of course, that's not the question. The question is, is God's existence improbable relative to the full scope of the evidence? 
And I'm persuaded that when you consider the full scope of the evidence, that God's existence is quite probable, even given any improbability which evil might be thought to throw upon God. And I think Dr. Dayton's own formulation of the problem of evil bears this out. Here is his argument as he presented it. If God exists, there is no morally unnecessary evil. Premise two, there is morally unnecessary evil. Three, therefore, God does not exist. Now notice, I can argue using the same first premise. If God exists, no morally unnecessary evil exists. Premise two, God uh, exists. Three, therefore, no morally unnecessary evil exists. So he's got to prove that there is, in fact, morally unnecessary evil. I'm going to argue that there are good reasons to believe that God exists, and that therefore it follows from his own syllogism that the evil that exists in the world is not morally unnecessary. Daniel Howard Snyder, in his recent book, The Evidential Argument from Evil, points out that the problem of evil is thus not a problem if you have more compelling grounds for believing in God. He says the argument from evil is a problem only for the theist who finds its premises compelling and who has lousy grounds for theism. But I think there are good grounds for theism. And let me present briefly three pieces of evidence which I think serve to make God's existence highly probable. Number one, the origin of the universe makes God's existence highly probable. The evidence for the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe points to the creation of the universe out of nothing. Most students do not realize that according to the Big Bang model, it is not just all matter and energy, but space and time themselves which came into existence at the moment of the Big Bang. Therefore, it is literally physically impossible for the Big Bang to have any sort of physical cause. In the words of the British physicist PCW Davies, the Big Bang represents the creation event, the creation not only of all the matter and energy in the universe, but also of space-time itself. So that on the Big Bang model, the universe literally comes into existence out of nothing. But that raises the obvious question, how can the universe come into existence out of nothing? This is a philosophical question. Out of nothing, nothing comes. The atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen of the University of Calgary gives this illustration. He says, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing. It just happened. You wouldn't accept that, he says. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. Well, what's true of the little bang is also true of the big bang. And we shouldn't accept in that case the explanation, nothing, it just happened. There must have been a transcendent cause which brought the universe into existence. And from the very nature of the case, this cause would have to transcend space and time and therefore be uncaused, immaterial, changeless, timeless, and enormously powerful. These are the core attributes of what the theist means by God. Secondly, the complex order of the universe makes God's existence highly probable. During the last 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions simply given in the Big Bang itself. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. How much more probable? Well, the eminent cosmologist Donald Page of the University of Alberta 
has calculated the odds of the initial conditions of our universe existing as being on the order of one chance out of 10 to the power of 10 to the 124th power, a number which is so inconceivable that to call it astronomical would be a wild understatement. Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, has called this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. So again, the view of the theist that there is an intelligent designer of the universe seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe, when it popped into being, uncaused out of nothing, just happened to be fine-tuned to an incomprehensible uh, precision by chance for the existence of intelligent life. Number three, objective moral values make God's existence highly probable. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist of the last century who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist, do objective moral values exist? And I must confess that in the absence of God, I don't see any reason to think that the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. After all, if there is no God, then what's so special about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the atheistic view, some actions, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, apart from the social consequences, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, without God, there isn't any absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and I think deep down we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, torture, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Some things are really wrong. Thus, paradoxically, even though evil at first seems to call into existence, uh, into question God's existence, at a deeper level, evil actually proves God's existence. Because apart from God, there wouldn't be any distinction between right and wrong, good and evil. And thus, the fact that evil exists shows that objective moral values exist. But if moral values cannot exist without God, then it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. So it seems to me that all things are not equal, that there are, in fact, good reasons to believe that God exists, and that, therefore, even given any improbability arising from evil, uh, nevertheless, it is highly probable that there is a God. So I'm tempted to just quit there and grant Dr. Dayton's point that evil does count against God's existence, but maintain that it's simply overwhelmed by my arguments for theism. 
But I'm going to resist that temptation because I think he has exaggerated the improbability which evil throws on God's existence. So let me argue, number two, that we are not in a position to judge with any confidence the probability of God's existence with respect to evil. This is because we're simply not in a good position to assess with any confidence whether God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil that occurs. You see, we're limited in space and time, in intelligence and insight, but God rules the whole of history and sees the end from the beginning. William Alston, in a recent uh, article in Philosophical Perspective, lists six such cognitive limits which make it impossible for us to assess with confidence the probability of God's having uh, any morally sufficient reason for permitting evil. And he concludes, it is impossible in principle for us to be justified in supposing that God does not have sufficient reasons for permitting evil. Let me just give one example of such a cognitive limitation, our being historically limited. God's morally sufficient reason for permitting a certain evil may not come to light in our lifetime. It might not come to light until after our life is over or in another place. For example, the murder of an innocent man or someone's being killed in an earthquake might send a ripple effect through history such that God's morally sufficient reason for allowing it may not emerge until centuries later or maybe in another country. When you think of our historical and geographical finitude, you can see how uh, speculative it is, how futile it is for us to speculate on whether God has morally sufficient reasons for the evil we observe. <laughs> William Alston concludes, we are simply not in a position to justifiably assert that God would have no sufficient reason for permitting evil. And thus, we're just not in a position to say with confidence of any evil, God doesn't have a morally sufficient reason for permitting that. Number three, I want to argue, certain Christian doctrines increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. What are some of these Christian doctrines? Well, number one, the purpose of life is not human happiness as such, but the knowledge of God. This is fundamental. Dr. Dayton said in his first speech that if God created us, he created the world for our well-being, for our benefit. But if by that you simply mean uh, material happiness in this world, on the Christian view that is false. The purpose of life is, yes, our well-being, but in a deepest and most spiritual sense, to gain a knowledge of God and his salvation. And I believe that there are many evils that occur in life which are utterly gratuitous and pointless with respect to producing human happiness, but they may not be gratuitous with respect to producing the knowledge of God. You see, God's purpose in the world ultimately is to bring as many people as he can freely to accept his salvation. And it may well be the case that only in a world involving gratuitous natural and moral evil that the maximum number of people would freely come to know God and his salvation. So it is not true, as Dr. Dayton says, that all of the evils have to be balanced out, that there can't be gratuitous evils. On the contrary, it may be that only in such a world would the maximal number of people freely embrace God's salvation. What Dr. Dayton would have to show is that it is feasible for God to create a world involving less evils than this one in which the same amount of the knowledge of God and his salvation is achieved. And how could he possibly prove that? That is pure speculation. Doctrine number two, people rebel against God 
and his purpose. The Christian is not surprised at the human evil in the world. On the contrary, he expects it. The Bible says that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose, and that God doesn't intervene to stop human depravity. He lets sin run its course. This only serves to heighten our need of God's forgiveness, to underline our depravity in the state of spiritual alienation from God, and to underline our need of God's cleansing and moral forgiveness in our lives. The terrible moral evils that occur in the world are simply testimony to man's depravity in this state of alienation from God and serves to emphasize our need of God. Thirdly, and I might just add, to eliminate that, God would have to eliminate free will, which he isn't willing to do. Number three, God's purpose spills over into eternal life. You see, this life is not all there is on the Christian view. There is an afterlife. This life is but the cramped and narrow foyer that opens up into the great banquet hall of God's eternity. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament and suffered greatly in his life, said, and I quote, that I consider the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What Paul says is that the longer you spend in eternity in fellowship with God, the more the sufferings of this life shrink by comparison to an infinitesimal moment. And thus the blessed in heaven, uh, looking back on this life, no matter what they suffered, would say, I would go through it a million, million times over to know this joy, this happiness. And thus, God's purposes spill over into the afterlife, which uh, I think achieved the ultimate happiness and spiritual benefit and fulfillment of human existence. Now, given these Christian doctrines, the coexistence of God and evil is not at all improbable. Now, all of this has been said concerning the intellectual problem of evil. But as I speak with students, I don't think that for most of you, the problem of evil is an intellectual problem. It's an emotional problem. As I speak to you, I find that many of you have come from homes or families where you have been deeply hurt, and many of you carry deep emotional scars that uh, make it difficult for you to believe that there is a loving and omnipotent God. And what I want to say to you on this score is simply this. Atheism solves nothing. It leads only to bitterness, anger, and despair at the injustices of life. If you will allow God to take those hurts and transform you, God will give you the grace to forgive those who have wronged you. He will give you the strength to go on, and he will give you hope for the future. Remember the movie Forrest Gump and the figure in the movie Lieutenant Dan? When Lieutenant Dan lost his legs in Vietnam, he was angry, bitter, and dissolute. It wasn't until he made his peace with God that night in the rigging in the storm aboard the shrimp boat that Lieutenant Dan was ready to begin life anew as a productive and uh, balanced and uh, a happy human being. He had made his peace with God. And I think it's only after we make our peace with God about the evils and injustices that we may have suffered that we're truly ready to go on with life. So that God, I believe, is ultimately the solution to the problem of evil. He redeems us from evil. He uh, forgives us our sins that we have committed. He gives us strength for the future and grace to forgive those who have wronged us. And thus, in the final analysis, far from being a problem, God is, in fact, I think, man's last best hope for a solution to the problem of evil.
จายมีอ่ะอ no I mean obviously I have to respond to this um, my sense is that that Dr. Craig did the the sensible thing and changed the subject um, uh, it is true that if you look um, at grounds for theism without considering the problem of evil it is possible to take that hypothesis seriously. And let me just make a couple of remarks about his three reasons for three, three grounds for theism, which was at the beginning of his talk. The first one's about the origin of the universe. I mean, I'm not a physicist, um, and I don't know doodly squat about that stuff. Um, I grew up in a scientific household. My dad's a physicist. He's an atheist. My granddad was a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, by the way. Um, and you know, what can I say? Um, I don't know how the universe began. Neither does Dr. Craig. Neither does anybody else. Uh, so what are the prior probabilities of X or Y? Who knows? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Um, the next one is that the initial conditions of the universe are very inhospitable to the possibility of life. The probability is 1 over 10 to the gazillion. Um, <laughs> Well, the probabilities are relative to background information, and we don't have the background information. For all I know, the probability of life uh, in the universe is one. Um, and as, as I said, I don't have that information, and neither does Dr. Gray. Um, I think it's highly likely that there's life all over the place. I think it's very unlikely that we're the only life in the universe. Seems to me to be just very unreasonable to believe other things being equal, since there are so many stars, so many planets evolving, so many stars. Sure, there are going to be lots of planets that don't meet the conditions of life, but why not lots that do? I mean, there's just so many of them. Uh, numbers, when they're really, really big, get very hard to understand, but the universe is a very big place. Now, even if we were the only place in the universe where there was life, the fact that we are the only place, and they're therefore very, very improbable, doesn't mean that we're not the one, right? I mean, if we are, we are. So I think that, that, that the, the attempt to produce you know, probability figures for the, the initial conditions of the universe that would make life probable or improbable is a game where we don't really know enough about what we're talking about to have good numbers. And, and I don't think that this is a problem that's going to go away in a hurry. Um, or maybe ever. Uh, one of the things about the origin of the universe is you can't see beyond it. And that's why it's the Big Bang. There's nothing that we can see on the other side of it. Um, therefore, we have no reason to believe that there's a transcendent, powerful, big guy that made it happen any more than that we have to believe that there isn't anything on the other side of it. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about objective moral values. I think there's a slide happening on the notion of objective. Um, first of all, the idea of objectivity in moral values could mean something like true whether or not we think it's true. Clearly you don't need God for objectivity of that sort. Um, but true independently of human beings? It's not clear to me that it makes sense. I mean, imagine, for example, that we had slightly different um, evolutionary history and, you know, I don't know, that we had a different sex life and uh, that... Uh, 
that human beings were born in very, very large numbers, you know, 100,000 at a time, um, and that the, the way they were born would be that the, the female would lay her eggs in the dead body of the male, and then they would eat their way out, and then they would eat each other, and then they wouldn't become sentient until there were, you know, I don't know, 10 left or something like that. Um, I mean, obviously, things like maternal care and loving your children and all that kind of stuff would take on a very different meaning in a world like that, right? I mean, so clearly some of the moral facts about us have to do with who we are and what we're like. Um, not all of them, but some of them. But, but furthermore, why would the presence of God guarantee objective moral values? Now, think of two possibilities. One is that we have the capacity to know objective moral truths. Let us say because uh, if we say to ourselves, I ought to act in such a way, or we conjecture, should I act in such a way, when we consider it, we see that this is you know, an objective law that governs our behavior, and we would be irrational or we'd be immoral if we violated that law. It seems to me that that, that kind of possibility doesn't require any kind of divine underwriting. Um, and it's a possibility that you, know, you have to be a Kantian to, to take that kind of morality seriously, but Kantianism is just as good a hypothesis as some kind of sociological utilitarianism, which is, which is what Dr. Craig proposed. But if by objective you meant something that was beyond that, I mean, let's suppose God has purposes that are beyond our power to understand. How could they be objectively binding on us if we can't, through our own intellectual powers, discover these things to be binding on us? So it seems to me that either we have the power to know objective truth, in which case we don't need God because it will be a product of the act of knowing it, or else if we don't have the, the knowledge to know objective truth, we won't do us any good, right? Because we won't be able to recognize it when we see it. And I, I mean, I take this to be a serious problem because I don't think, see, unlike Dr. Craig, I don't see uh, the Christian hypothesis as a single one. I think of the, the religions of the world as, as offering up a very great variety of hypotheses that all tempt the intellect in different ways. How could one decide which one was the one to take seriously? The mere fact that you grow up in a Christian country is no argument. I suppose you grew up in a different country. You'd be a Muslim, or you'd be a Buddhist, or you'd be a Confucian, or whatever, right? Um, I mean, I grew up in an atheist household. No? I'm an atheist. I'm a reflective atheist. I went through university trying to make myself into a Christian. I failed. Did everything I could. I joined Christian organizations. I reflected. I meditated. I took drugs. All the things you have to do to... You know, um, but none of it worked, you know? Um, so I guess that the, the, the claim that I want to make is that even though it is the case, and I, I, I would just give this all to Dr. Craig, that... Um, the Christian doctrine, as he was willing to expound it, does say all the things that he says it does. Um, the mere fact that it says all those things has to be balanced against all the other theological systems which say rather different things. Right? Maybe not greatly different things, but particularly a little bit different things. Right? For example, if you're a Christian, at least in the, in the sense of Christian which I take Dr. Craig to be, because I don't take him to be a, a full-blooded ecumenicalist, but a, a quasi-literalist of some sort, I mean, you actually have to think that Christ is an important phenomenon, right? That Christ actually was born, you know, and all that stuff. Now, 
that strikes me as a possibility. But, you know, there are lots of religions that don't recognize Christ, that pose objective moral grounds for living, that you have nice, nice cosmologies that tell you how the world started and so on, that give plans for human beings. How could one decide between these? Well, the, the argument that I was trying to propose earlier on was the problem with all religious hypotheses is that they narrate meanings that are supposedly objective. The very claim that, that there are objective truths about how things hang together is the problem. I mean, I think if you're an atheist, you have to accept the fact that meaning grows out of consciousness, that meaning is a product of the finite knowing activities of finite limited creatures. And so there are limits to knowledge. There are limits to meaning. There are limits to objectivity. And beyond those things, there just aren't answers. Not because we don't know what they are, but just because there are no such things. The, the meaningfulness of the stories that we tell are derived from our meaning-giving acts. We tell the stories and we're compelled by them, and that's what makes them, that's what makes them seriously. So that the idea that the purpose of life could be sort of independent of our meaning-giving activity strikes me as very odd. Now, I don't think, obviously, that atheism produces bitterness and despair. I'm one, I'm not bitter, I'm not despairing, I'm having a good time. Um, so, and you know, I mean, I expect to die, turn into dust, right? I don't think that I will be reborn. You know, if I am, I'll be surprised. I'll be kind of bitter, in fact, you know? I'll say, God, I tried real hard, what's the matter with you? You know, like, wh why didn't you let me know earlier, you know? Um, so, and I think that it is, you know, three minutes. Um, I think the fact that, that the weight of evil in the world is enormously overbalanced by the infinite wonders of the afterlife um, is something of a cheat. Um, I mean, it's, if, it, if Christian doctrine is true, it's true, and I, I have no... You know, no quarrels with that, because of course it could be true, right? You know, it could be that there's an afterlife and we'll all be, you know, wonderfully happy. Um, and then you'd think, you know, wow, this is great. But um, why would we take seriously the idea that that would happen, right? How can we imagine, I mean, if you think about this for a second, that it's a story which, if you try to unpack the empirical details of it, even just a little bit, it, it gets less and less and less plausible. Think about the fact of memory. Right? Um, I'm 50 years old. I can remember some of the things that I did in the last year, fewer of the ones in the year before that. I can't remember anything from when I was four. But suppose that I was, you know, 150 trillion years old which presumably if I were in the afterlife, I would be at some point. I mean, I'd live forever, right? Um, try to take seriously for a moment the idea that you would be you after you had lived forever, or even not, not forever, but only for 150 trillion years, right? What sense could you give that you would be, you would be the you, you know? I mean, because after all, it's somebody else. I mean, suppose that, that God gave you this deal. Um, you know, I'm going to trash your body, and I'm going to make somebody just like you, and I'm going to give them infinite life. Would you say, well, that's a good deal? No, of course you wouldn't, because it wouldn't be you, right? But what sense can we give to the idea that you would be you in the afterlife? 
Uh, this is just one problem. I think there's a very large number of problems like that, and I don't want to make a whole lot of weight out of them. But I just think that the hypothesis is one of these things that sounds real good as long as you don't look into it. And if you do look into it, it gets increasingly implausible. I have 30 <laughs> seconds left. And I wanted to talk about the emotional problem of, uh, of evil, and I'll do that. Uh, I'll give you 30 seconds of my time. Hey, first rebuttal from Dr. Craig. In this speech, I'd like to review those four points that I made in my opening remarks. First, I argued that evil does not suffice to render God's existence probable. This is because probabilities are relative to background knowledge, and when you consider the total background evidence available, God's existence is quite probable. Now, this is not changing the subject. As Dr. Dayton himself says, this is relevant because uh, the probability of God's existence is going to depend on all things being equal. And I don't think they're equal. I think there are good reasons to believe God exists. Remember a syllogism that I uh, presented or that I altered. If God exists, unnecessary evil does not exist. But God exists. Therefore, unnecessary evil does not exist. The evils that we see are not, in fact, gratuitous and unnecessary. Unless he can prove to you that the evils that we see around us are gratuitous and unnecessary, then his syllogism doesn't work to disprove God. Now, I presented three reasons that I think make the existence of God highly probable. First, the origin of the universe. Here he simply responded that nobody knows how the universe began. Well, I simply beg to differ. The standard model of Big Bang cosmology is that all space-time trajectories going in a past-directed direction end at the initial cosmological singularity, and that represents a beginning of space and time. Stephen Hawking, in his most recent book, The Nature of Space and Time, 1996, page 20 says, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, that beginning requires a cause, but it cannot be a physical cause. Quentin Smith, an atheist philosopher, in, a, in the book Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology writes, it belongs analytically to the concept of the cosmological singularity that it is not the effect of prior physical events. The definition of a singularity entails that it is impossible to extend the space-time manifold beyond the singularity. This effectively rules out the idea that the singularity is the effect of some prior natural process. It can only be the result of a supernatural cause, indeed a divine cause, which transcends time and space. I think it's ind uh, indisputable that the Big Bang theory at least renders the existence of God more probable than not. Secondly, I said the complex order in the universe makes God's existence highly probable. Dr. Dayton responded, well, we don't have the necessary background information to calculate these probabilities. I think that's simply mistaken. In the various fields of classical cosmology, quantum cosmology, biochemistry, astrophysics, again and again it's been demonstrated that the initial conditions of the universe are finely balanced in such a way that were these to be slightly altered, life would be impossible and would not exist. John Barrow gives a good illustration of what this probability is like. He says, imagine you put a red dot on a piece of paper, and that represents a life-permitting universe. Now alter one of those basic physical constants, say the neutron-proton mass ratio or the gravitational force, 
and make another dot for the universe that, that would represent. And make that a blue dot if it's life prohibiting and a red dot if it's life permitting. And then do it again, alter the constants again and make a blue or a red dot. What you wind up with, he says, is a sea of blue with only pinpoints of red here or there. And that is the sense in which our existence or our universe is incomprehensibly improbable to exist. Dr. Dayton says, but it's unlikely that we're the only life in the universe. I'm not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that life anywhere existing in the universe depends upon those initial conditions in the Big Bang being exquisitely fine-tuned. This is clearly, I think, more plausible on the hypothesis of design than on the basis of chance. I mean, after all, imagine archaeologists, say, digging in the ground, and they come across rocks uh, shaped like tomahawk heads and arrowheads and artifacts. Can you imagine one of them saying, why, look, Jones, how the processes of sedimentation and metamorphosis have produced these uncannily shaped rocks? Of course not. He would immediately recognize them as the artifacts of intelligent design. And in exactly the same way, it is plausible to interpret the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life as the uh, result of intelligent design. Thirdly, I said the presence of objective moral values in the world renders God's existence highly probable. Dr. Dayton says, does it make sense to talk about values independent of human beings? And he imagined making various changes in human existence. That's unnecessary to ask that sort of hypothesis. I'm arguing that, that they are objective in the sense that they are valid independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. For example, Nazi anti-Semitism was wrong, and it would still be wrong even if the Nazis had won the Second World War and succeeded in exterminating or brainwashing anybody who disagreed with them. And Nazi anti-Semitism is not just morally neutral. Jean-Paul Sartre, the great atheist philosopher, confronted with this fact, uh, found himself in an agonizing dilemma. As an existentialist, he did not believe in God or God-given values, but he could not bring himself to say that Nazi anti-Semitism was simply a matter of personal choice without any objective truth or falsity. And therefore, he was forced into the view that existentialism was a humanism after all, affirming the value of human beings. Unfortunately, Sartre, on his atheistic view, had no basis for that leap of faith. Dr. Dayton says, but how does God solve the problem? Well, very simple. God's moral nature is what Plato called the good. It is the embodiment, the locus of goodness. God is by nature essentially just, holy, fair, loving, kind, etc. And this moral nature expresses itself to us in the form of divine commands. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which become for us our moral duties. And thus the Christian is able to explain the nature of moral obligation on the basis of God's commands. Dr. Dayton says, but we have the power to recognize objective truth. Why do we need God? Remember in my first speech, I said the issue is not can we recognize objective uh, moral values without believing in God? Of course we can. A mother doesn't need to believe in God to recognize that she ought to love her child rather than torture and abuse it. So that's simply a red herring in the debate tonight. The question is the foundation of moral values. On the atheistic view, quite honestly, I just don't see any reason to think that human beings are objectively morally valuable because they're just animals, and animals don't have ethical systems. Richard Taylor, a famous ethicist, 
uh, imagines a race of people living in the state of nature without customs or laws. And he says, let's imagine one person kills another one and takes his goods. Uh, Richard Taylor goes on to write, such actions, though injurious to their victims, are no more unjust or immoral than they would be if done by one animal to another. A hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but he does not murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first takes it, but does not steal it, for none of these things is forbidden. And exactly the same considerations apply to the people we are imagining. In the absence of God, moral values are just the byproducts of sociobiological evolution, or else they're just expressions of personal taste. But as I said, that is morally abhorrent. I think it is evident that there are objective moral values, and I think Dr. Dayton agrees with that, and that makes the existence of God highly probable. Thus, evil does not suffice to disprove God's existence, even given the improbability that accrues to God from evil. It is outweighed by the positive evidence for the existence of God. Now, next, uh, I then argue that we're simply not in a position to judge that it is impossible for God to have morally sufficient reasons to permit evil. And I mentioned one such cognitive limitation, our historical uh, limitation. To give an analogy of this, in chaos theory, a branch of science, scientists have shown that the, a little butterfly fluttering his wings on a branch in West Africa can set in motion forces that will ultimately result in a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. And yet no one looking at that little butterfly palpitating on the branch would ever be able to predict such an outcome. In a similar way, we simply do not know the outcome in history of the various evils and suffering that we observe in life. We simply are not in a position to estimate or calculate the probability of God's morally sufficient reasons for uh, these evils. And therefore, I don't see how Dr. Dayton can give any quantification of the improbability that he suggests evil throws upon God's existence. Finally, number three, I argued that Christian doctrines, if true, increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. Number one, that the purpose of life is not happiness as such, but the knowledge of God. Two, that people are endowed with free will and in a state of rebellion and spiritual alienation from God. And thirdly, that there is an eternal life. Now, Dr. Dayton here responds, but there is a plurality of religions. How do you know which one is true? That is a, a red herring in tonight's debate. What I am arguing is that on the Christian view, the problem of evil is not a problem for the Christian. So what he would have to show is that these Christian doctrines are somehow improbable. And I don't think that he's been able to do that tonight. He hasn't even tried except with respect to eternal life. How the, the Muslim or the Buddhist or the Hindu solves the problem of evil is up to them. That, I'm not going to talk about that, but I'm saying that for the Christian, the problem of evil is not uh, an insuperable difficulty. Now, what about the question of eternal life? He said, this is a cheat. Not at all. This is part and parcel of Christian doctrine. It wasn't invented to solve the problem of evil. It is an inherent part of the Christian worldview, and he would have to show that it's improbable if I'm not to be allowed to appeal to it. But he admits it could be true. But he says, why take it seriously? Well, let me give you two reasons to take it seriously. One would be what I would call mind-body dualism. That is to say, I don't think that we are just physical organisms. I think that in addition to our brain, we have a soul or mind, a self that is immaterial. And that makes survival after the death of the body more plausible. Secondly, I would say that the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth renders the hypothesis of the afterlife also probable. 
Now, I don't have time to talk about this tonight, but I've written extensively on this, and I think the historical foundations for that event are quite good. Finally, he gives the problem of memory. How could you be you if you lived for so long? I would simply say you are still you because of bodily continuity. As long as there is historical continuity, I don't see any problem of personal identity there at all. Finally, remember my fourth point was that evil actually proves the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Evil exists, therefore objective moral values exist, therefore it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. So I think that, uh, in fact, there really isn't any insuperable problem to belief in God so long as a person is willing to adopt a Christian theistic view of the universe. Okay, Dr. Dayton for a second rebuttal. Okay, a uh, couple of small points. Um, I want to grant the, the pretty much the last claim that sorry that uh, Dr. Craig made, which is that for the Christian, the problem of evil is not an insuperable problem. Um, I've never suggested that it is. Um, I mean, I take it the Christian is someone whose beliefs are already committed in a, in a way in, in which uh, it's unlikely that they would be willing to uh, look at the total evidence that I would consider to be the right set. Uh, so I'm not particularly interested in the question of whether or not Christians find the problem evil uh, a problem. I'm interested in the question, does the person who is not yet committed to the question, am I a Christian or am I an atheist? Right. That's the person that I want to talk to. Um, now, a couple of times Dr. Craig had talked about how relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is very probable. And then he talked about, once again, the Big Bang, and, and he talked about the complex order of the universe, and uh, he talked about uh, objective moral truths. Uh, let me just go over those just, to, just again. I mean, first of all, um, since I think that the world according to the atheist and the world according to the Christian are radically different places, not just about one, one being, God, but everywhere, the whole structure of the worlds are different. There is no independent place to stand. There is no in independent body of evidence to which both can appeal, um, which makes uh, calculating probabilities just something that goes out the window, which is a problem. How do you, how do you evaluate probabilities when you're in a situation where you can't have, by the nature of the case, uh, the full scope of the evidence? And I don't offer any any proposal about how that should happen, but uh, I mean, I do think that that's, that's a problem. Um, Dr. Craig said, if we alter the constraints a little bit on the complex order of the world and we get all the blue dots, you know, the blue, we end up with a blue sea with just little points of red. Uh, I mean, why should we imagine that it's possible that these constraints could be different? Um, you know, part of our problem is, is to, to know what gets to be varied and what, what doesn't get to vary. Um, we require a background set of uh, of beliefs that tell us that some things could be otherwise and some things couldn't be otherwise. And that's exactly what we lack. Okay? The, the problem is, is as you push the probabilities back and back and back, um, we get a worse and worse handle on them. Um, I think the Big Bang is, uh, is, is a perfect example of this. Um, 
Dr. Craig said that the, the Big Bang is such that it couldn't have a physical cause. Therefore, it follows that it must have a supernatural cause. How does that follow? Right? I mean, if it can't have a physical cause, it can't have a physical cause. Why should it follow that it has a supernatural cause? Is that the only alternative? How would we know that it is? Right? I mean, how would we even know how to think about that? I don't know how to think about that. Um, but again, I want to come back to morality. I mean, I think this is really uh, the big issue between us. Because um, is it possible to have objective beliefs, objective moral beliefs, without a divine command theory? Well, I mean, I don't really understand the divine command theory because we appeal to God's goodness, right, so that the commands are the right ones. And then we know the goodness by virtue of them being commands. But the com if the command, as it were, can transmit the knowledge that it's the good thing, then we don't need the command. All we need is the knowledge. If the command doesn't transmit the knowledge, then we're acting for a bad reason. We're acting not autonomously out of knowledge of the moral good, but, uh, but heteronomously. We're acting because we're so commanded, which is not a good moral reason. So the divine command theory strikes me as a bad theory. And I don't want to try to develop moral theory on my feet um, in you know three minutes or whatever. But let me just give a very minimal sketch of what I would want to say. Given that we have free will, and this is one thing that I agree with Dr. Craig on, um, because we have freedom, the mere fact that we have inclinations is not a reason for acting. Right? Because the fact that, I, that I'm sort of inclined, you know, the, the chemistry of my body is such that I want this or I want that, you know, I can say no to it, right? Because I'm free, because I have free will, I'm not obligated, I'm not required to do what I desire or do what I'm inclined to do. So that, from, from which it falls right away that mere inclination is just not an adequate reason. So what could count as an adequate reason? Well, a divine command? Well, only if one knew that it was divine and only if one knew that it was a command that was legitimate. Um, the, the fact is that there are, it seems to me, objective truths which, when we articulate them to ourselves, we recognize that we could not violate them without violating our own self-respect, without doing something that we know to be wrong. We don't need a command for that. As I said, I'm not going to try to develop a theory of how we come to know these truths, but the mere fact that we're free means that we're not just, in this sense, animals that are pushed around by our biology. Now, of course, I leave myself open to answering the question, how do we get free will? And that's a very big question, and I would appeal to language. And that's a long story, and I don't have very much to say about it here. Um, so let me then now close. I have a couple minutes left on the final remark about, for the Christian, the problem of evil is not a problem. I agree. For the Christian, the problem of evil is not a problem. The only reason it's not a problem is that you have prior belief in the existence of God, and so you drive the syllogism the one direction rather than the other. Um, but on the other hand, why are you a Christian? Now, it seems to me that there are a very small number of Christians who are Christians because they've undergone a psychologically compelling event in their life which led them to Christianity. And I don't have any belief that I can talk sensibly to such a person in the sense of giving them reason to disbelieve. Um, I have relatives who have undergone conversions and um, we don't talk to each other about religion because it isn't worth it. We don't get anywhere. 
But most people, strikes me, haven't had such psychologically compelling events which have made it impossible for them not to believe. Most people believe in religion because they have this sort of, you know, like, well, it's probably true, and, you know, it's like, you know, how else would it make sense? And sort of, and, you know, just sort of generally not very good reasons. And, in fact, if you look at Christian countries, you know, most people are Christians. And there's a few, you know, sort of militant Muslims and a few militant these. You go to a Muslim country, there's hardly any Christians. Amazing, you know, everybody's a Muslim. Not for very good reasons either, just because, you know, their parents were, they grew up that way. I submit that most people who are Christians are Christians for pretty lousy reasons. Those people, I think, have a responsibility to rethink their position. And to rethink it by stepping back entirely and looking at the two possibilities, and actually there's more than two, there's lots of them, um, and trying to step as far away from the belief-causing events in their early life that caused them to have the beliefs that they have without good reason. And so you can't step away from everything. You can step away from... <laughs> All right, second rebuttal from Dr. Craig. Well, now, I think we saw considerable concession in that last speech toward the rationality of believing in the coexistence of God and evil. Remember my first argument was that evil doesn't suffice to render God's existence improbable uh, because probabilities are relative to background information and in our background information we have good grounds for believing that God exists. And here Dr. Dayton says, well there, there's no independent way of calculating the probability of evil. It is relative to background information. And he admits that if you are a Christian, then it, it is not uh, improbable. It's not an insuperable difficulty. And I agree entirely. That is the point uh, that I've been trying to argue. But he insists, uh, this is only because the Christian has certain prior beliefs. That's right. And the question then is, as he rightly states, the justification of those beliefs. He would have to show that the Christian is somehow unjustified in the beliefs that he holds. Now, I would be the first to admit, as uh, a Christian teacher and philosopher, that most Christians do not, in fact, have adequate grounds for thinking about uh, why they believe, and that this is one of the burdens that I have in my own work, is, is trying to encourage Christians to think about the reasons for belief and why belief in God is justified and belief in Christ is justified. So I certainly carry no brief for superficial, thoughtless, brain-dead Christianity. But that's why I presented three good reasons tonight to think that God does exist. And I think the, that the belief in God is justified. Um, so let's look at the first question about the origin of the universe. Dr. Dayton says, well, all right, I concede that the Big Bang cannot have a physical cause, but how does it follow that it's a supernatural cause? Well, very simply, it follows deductively. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. When you conceptually analyze what it is to be a cause of the universe, that is a cause of space and time, it must be a being which transcends space and time, is therefore timeless and spaceless, therefore immaterial and changeless, and endowed with enormous power. So it seems to me that that gives you the attributes of the cause right there, and that's all I'm arguing for. I then argued that on the basis of the complex order of the universe, it is also highly probable that an intelligent designer exists. 
And in response to this argument, Dr. Dayton uh, says, well, perhaps these physical constants and quantities given in the Big Bang are necessary. That is a fantastic hypothesis which goes against everything that we know about these quantities and constants in physics. There is no apparent physical reason why the proton-neutron mass ratio has to be what it is, or why the gravitational force couldn't have been a little bit weaker, why the balance between matter and antimatter couldn't have been somewhat different, why the expansion rate of the universe couldn't have been somewhat different than it is. All of these things are physically contingent. There's absolutely no physical necessity for these. These are just put in as initial conditions at the moment of the Big Bang, and therefore it cannot be explained on the basis of natural law. The, the choices before us are chance or intelligent design. And as I say, it seems far more plausible to me to think that these are the result of design. Thirdly, I argued that objective moral values in the world make God's existence uh, probable. And notice that Dr. Dayton does affirm the existence of objective moral values, but he continues to present the argument that if we can know these values independently of God, then why do we need God? Well, that's sort of like saying, if we can know the commands, then why do we need the commander? Well, you need the commander to ground the commands, to say what makes the commands authoritative, or, or where the commands came from. Uh, especially since on the atheistic view, I don't see any reason to regard human beings as special. To think that homo sapiens have an objective morality is really just an example of speciesism. Uh, it's the ultimate racism, uh, in effect. Dr. Dayton says, well, but we're not just animals, but we're, we're free. Well, I would like to know how freedom is possible on an atheistic view, because on an atheistic view of human nature, we are just collocations of atoms. We're, we're material beings, physical beings. I'd like to ask Dr. Dayton if he is a materialist or uh, if he does hold to the independent existence of the mind or soul apart from the body. If he doesn't, then I don't see how he can avoid determinism. On a physicalist, materialist view of human nature, everything we think and do and feel is a result of our genetic makeup and the input of our five senses, so that we're just, in effect, genetic and environmental marionettes. So it seems to me that given the existence of objective values, that the most plausible explanation of these is that these are the commands of a holy and righteous God. Then I argued that we are not in a position to judge whether it's improbable that God should have a morally sufficient reason to permit evil. And on my notes I'm taking for this debate, I have a huge blank uh, across the course of the debate because nothing has been said to respond to that. And yet this point alone is enough, I think, to carry the day for the theist. We're simply not in a cognitive position to judge with any kind of confidence that when an evil occurs, God can't have a morally sufficient reason for that. Thirdly, I said that given certain Christian doctrines, the probability of the coexistence of God and evil is quite good. And um, Dr. Dayton now admits that, all right, it is not an insuperable problem for the Christian. Well, then I ask, who is it supposed to be a problem for? Well, he says, it's a problem for the uncommitted. Well, not at all. If you're not committed, then how is the problem and evil a problem for you? Because you don't believe in in God, so why is evil a problem for you? It's only for the theist who has lousy grounds for believing in theism that evil is a problem, as Daniel Howard Snyder says. Uh, but I think there are good grounds for believing in theism, and moreover, I think given these Christian doctrines, which are not implausible, that um, therefore the Christian is quite within his rights 
to believe that God exists and that evils are not unnecessary. So the problem of evil isn't a problem for the atheist. It's not a problem for the uncommitted, and it's not a problem for the Christian. So who is this problem supposed to be a problem for? Uh, I can't quite figure it out. Finally, maybe I was wrong in saying it's not a problem for the atheist because I argued that evil actually proves God. And again, there's been no response to this argument. Uh, given that objective moral values exist because some things are really evil, it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. So in a sense, I guess the only problem of evil that there is is the problem for the atheist. Namely, the atheist has to face not only the problem of evil, but the problem of good. How is it that there are these strange things that we call objective moral value, good and evil, in a world which is just composed of material atoms and energy in circulation in different configurations? Where do these strange things called moral values come from? Uh, given that evil exists, that good exists, it seems to me that the most plausible explanation is that there is a transcendent, uh, holy, uh, righteous being who is the locus of goodness and whose commands constitute for us our moral values. So I guess I don't think that the problem of evil is really a problem for anybody except for the atheist. You ready? Um, I have to respond to the last remark. Um, when I said the problem of evil wasn't a problem for the Christian, of course I meant, you know, the, uh, the Christian whose faith is like a rock. Um, most people are not petrified Christians. Most Christians are pretty flabby in their beliefs. We've already, I mean, I think Dr. Craig acknowledged that. Most non-Christians uh, are pretty flabby in their beliefs, too. In fact, I think most people are pretty flabby in their ultimate beliefs. And I actually don't think that's such a bad thing. Um, there are two reasons for that. One is that the reasons for any uh, of the big cosmological positions are subtle, complicated, and hard to get to, and ordinary people often just haven't gotten around thinking about it, and so it's not surprising. Uh, the, other, the other reason is that um, people's beliefs are so much a function of their early conditioning that they already have beliefs in place not strong beliefs, but beliefs that are just strong enough that they don't question them. Beliefs that just stand in place of questions that ought to be asked. The philosophic impulse is relatively weak in human beings. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing, because after all, our primary uh, objective in life is not to think deep thoughts, but to uh, you know get through the day and, and have a good life. Um, and to know God, I grant, if possible. Um, uh, I am a little disturbed by the, the continued assertion by Dr. Craig that certain things prove deductively that something else. Uh, pretty clearly, the, the, the hypothesis by some prominent uh, cosmologist that the Big Bang couldn't have a physical cause doesn't deductively prove that it has a supernatural cause. Um, the, the argument that every event has a cause, therefore, you know, that isn't material has to be an immaterial one, um, is problematic. I, I mean, and this is not a new new problem. This is a problem that's been around since Aquinas. Uh, you know, what caused God? 
Well, it turns out God doesn't need a cause. Well, nothing else does too, maybe. I mean, uh, why should one? And it's like either something needs a cause or it doesn't. And if, if everything needs a cause, we are in a destructive uh, cycle of moving back one step, one step more, one step more. Why stop at God? Right? Particularly when the, the hypothesis of God as cause is, is forced on you by this deductive argument that there's a singularity and it couldn't have physical cause as far as we know, at least according to the physicists, small number of people who purport to understand it. And I mean, quite frankly, I'm not particularly impressed by the claim that, that Big Bang theory is the best theory in physics at, at the moment. Um, the best theory in physics at the moment changes with some regularity. And, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, 10 years from now, Big Bang Theory is out the window. Um, as I say, I'm not a physicist. And, you know, if I could become one, you know, by spending, you know, 30 years doing that, I did 30 years doing something else. Um, now, so I think that most people don't have adequate grounds to know that God is more, that God's existence is more likely than evil because most people don't have adequate grounds either way. They're flabby in their ultimate thinking. And so evil really is a problem for them. It ought to be a problem. Evil is a wedge. It ought to cause people to take these issues seriously. It might drive people to a settled and firm Christianity, which would be better than being flabby. Right? It might drive people to atheism, which would also be better than being flabby. Um, let me say one last thing about, about morality. The, the idea that we're limited and we couldn't know the possibilities and, you know, the, 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 the butterfly flapping its wings and then, you know, civilizations falling 10 centuries later. Um, I'm a localist with respect to ethics, right? If something bad happens to baby Jane, I want the story to be about baby Jane. I don't want it to turn out that 10 centuries later, you know, somebody has a good time. That strikes me as just uh, way too weak a moral system. I mean, if one had a view like that, I could say, hey, maybe I should rob a bank. You know, like, I don't know. Then it won't have good consequences 10 centuries down the road. Um, so, um, so I think that the, that the, the moral problem doesn't go away just because we have a limited knowledge. Um, and I take it that my time is up. Now the conclusion from Dr. Craig. Well, I want to thank Dr. Dayton for an extremely enjoyable and stimulating exchange of ideas tonight. I have uh, really enjoyed this debate. I want to close with a story told by a former faculty colleague of mine uh, that is a true story. He used to visit a nursing home to cheer up and encourage the shut-ins and the invalids that he found there. And he told this story about a woman he met there one day. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. 
I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you, happy Mother's Day. She held a flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. Much to my surprise, her words were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with pen and paper to write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all of the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about as you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment, and I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, and this is what she said. I think how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain, without human company and without an explanation why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power, lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone. She had incredible power. On the atheistic view, Mabel was just a deluded old woman who had her religious faith as a psychological crutch. But there's an alternative. It may be that Mabel was really in touch with an incredible power, a supernatural power. We've seen tonight that evil in the world does not suffice to render God's existence improbable. On the contrary, there are good reasons to believe that such a God exists. We've seen that we're not in a position to judge with any confidence the improbability that God would have morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil. And we've seen that Christian doctrines increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. Therefore, I think that my friend was right. I think that Mabel had incredible power because she was in touch with the God of the universe, a God in whose presence she now stands in glory, free from every infirmity and pain that she bore, happy beyond comparison for the life that she now has, world without end. Amen.
Okay, that ends uh, the formal part of our debate. So, now the fun part, the questions. Um, I think how we're going to do this, you probably can't get to the mics very easily since there's a lot of people. Maybe just stand up and yell out your question, and then I'll try and repeat it into the mic here so that everybody can hear us. Try and keep your questions short, and we'll try and get through as many of them as we can. And if you'd like to address your question to either, either one of the debaters here, you'll do that. And then, or if you want to do both of them too, or even to me, I suppose, but I don't claim to be half as smart as these guys. Um, if you address it to one of the people, like for example, Dr. Craig, you'll have two minutes to respond, and then we'll also give Dr. Dayton one minute for a rebuttal for that. So, first question. Click the thing here. And you got uh, Dr. Dayton, I, I noticed that you uh, feel that uh, there's difficulty in uh, assessing the probability with respect to the uh, cosmological and teleological arguments that Dr. Uh, Craig gave, uh, which I find hard to understand since it's quite a, a normal assessment of, of probabilities and there's ample information available and certainly uh, ruinous books by scientists who have done these types of calculations. But it strikes me as odd that you find trouble with assessing those probabilities, but see no problem with assessing the probabilities that uh, God could not possibly have a morally sufficient reason for permitting evil. I wonder if you could comment on that. Uh, okay. I think there's actually two different questions, so I'll respond to each part. Um, the, the first point I want to make is I mean, there are. Can I go here? There are actually lots of, uh, of scientists who think that the probabilities uh, of life and thing are, are essentially one. I mean, I don't think that, the, that, that there is all that much agreement among scientists about how to assess the probabilities and what the, what the relevant factors are. So, um, and I could be wrong about that, but I don't think I am. Um, the, the other question, I, I mean, I took myself to be making a, a remark about the, my perception of morality. I'm a localist. What I mean by that is, is that, I mean, I'm not a utilitarian. I don't think, you know, if you chop somebody's leg off and everybody gets to eat it and they all benefit, you know, that that's a good thing. Uh, I think that, that harms that are visited on, on a person um, have to have a, a sufficient reason that is intelligible even to that person for them to be, to be justifiable. And so in that respect, I take morality to, to involve close and detailed assessments of particular actions at particular times by particular persons. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know quite what else to say. I wasn't trying to argue that, you know, if God existed, God couldn't have, you know, fantastic purposes that I couldn't imagine. Um, what I was trying to say is that a morality that will be intelligible to me will be one that, that picks actions, identifies actions at this very close level. And, and my argument for that is not, you know, I'm being arbitrary, but that if you don't have that kind of close assessment of the particularities of actions, it's just too easy to do bad things. It's too easy to be self-deceived. It's too easy to, uh, you know, to say, well, you know, like probably nobody will notice or this and that. It's, I think that that, lo that local identifiable consequences for moral actions is a requirement of um, doing good. That close? Um, it seems to me that the question is excellently posed. The probabilities of God's having morally sufficient reasons for any evil that we see 
are far more subjective and far more difficult to quantify and assess than the probabilities, for example, of the university life permitting. And it, I think it's simply a mistake to say there are people who believe that the probabilities of the initial conditions of the universe are one. Uh, it's recognized in the vast literature dealing with the so-called anthropic principle that these conditions are enormously improbable, and the whole debate over the anthropic principle is an attempt to find an explanation for those improbabilities. As for this localism, I think that two issues are being confused here. I am not a utilitarian, so I'm not saying that in determining what moral action you should take, you try to estimate the far-ranging consequences. Not at all. I'm saying you act on the basis of the divine commands, which provide a basis for morality. I'm simply saying that God, who is omniscient and knows everything, including the future, can permit evils knowing that some good will ultimately come out of them. Okay, we'll go to this side now. I think, I think there's sort of been a bit of a false uh, analogy going on here, and I'm kind of glad that Eric sort of dispensed with that as far as that life on other worlds. That, that goes back to free held, uh, already held beliefs as in, if there is life on other planets, then it shows that there, if life doesn't random here, there might be an ultimate purpose, or if there is, then it shows that we're not that special, therefore there is no God. It goes back, it, it's just a false analogy, I think. Um, I, I have a bit, I'm, and that's what I want to ask about is this free held beliefs. You discussed the Ten Commandments and so on as just divine. Uh, the Ten Commandments are not, were not universal, and any biblical scholar would tell you that at the time they were only held within the mandate of the tribe, uh, which held them to be part of their uh, religious history. And I mean, that might be new to the evangelicals here, the biblical scholarship and all. Uh, but also, and continuing on with that, that's a, the background knowledge. Eric said it's improbable to believe in God, and that the evidence is not. Not there. I suppose if there was a theophany of some kind, you might, you know, if it was manifest to everyone that provided empirical evidence, you would say, oh, well, then I can point to X or Y and say why this is so. But how can we test uh, your your belief in God, Dr. Craig? What what would suffice to, to negate that? And if nothing would negate that, why bother to discuss it? Well, with respect to the Ten Commandments, uh, those were given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's true. I believe that God chose the Jewish people uh, as his own because it was through them that he was going to bring the Messiah into the world who would become the savior of mankind. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments don't have universal applicability. They uh, were divinely revealed to Israel, but they are clearly universal in their scope. Uh, look at the first commandment, for example, you shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if these are a reflection of God's nature himself, then these do constitute our moral duties. As to the theophany business, uh, I don't know like Dr. Dayton say whether or not if he had an appearance of God to him, whether that would cause him to believe. I think that the grounds that I've given are sufficient for believing in God. Now, if those arguments were shown to be incorrect, that wouldn't prove that God does not exist. It would just mean that I have no good grounds for believing in God. At most, that would leave us with agnosticism. In order for me to be an atheist, you would have to give me a positive argument that God does not exist. For example, usually the problem of evil is presented in that way, or maybe an argument that the concept of God is incoherent or something. But until I hear those kinds of defeaters for my religious belief, I don't see any reason to give it up. 
Uh, I'm going to pass on the Ten Commandments part, um, but I want to talk about the other part. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I said earlier that Dr. Craig really didn't pick up on much, and I can see why, um, was the, the claim that you know, if God exists, the whole world has a sort of a luminous structure of purpose, and it's full of, of evident design and purpose. Now, I think that if, if that were true, we'd see it. I would expect there to be empirical evidence that God existed that would not be, you know, cosmological argument or something like that, but rather, you know, that we would see instant, we'd see miracles, we would see instances of divine intervention, we would see all kinds of things that would be, you know, that would make it plausible to us to believe. Now, I know that there's some people who do believe that the world has that structure, um, but I don't see it. And I'm not looking to find it not to be there. So I guess I, you know, I'm looking for something that I don't see. Okay, uh, we'll try this side. This question is actually for, um, for Dr. Frey. Um, in your third reason for proving the existence of God, you appeal to the existence of objective morality, and you, uh, you, you claim that these exist because of, there seems to be this inherent um, idea within people that certain things, such as the Nazi Holocaust, are just wrong. And I'll allow that point, but my question is therefore, um, it, it seems to be inconsistent to say that this objective morality comes from God. For instance, God could literally say tomorrow, um, thou shalt rape and kill, for that is the good. And every person in, in this room on that account would be morally required to go forth and rape and kill. And that seems to me just as inherently wrong as does the Nazi Holocaust. So it seems to me that you, that if, if we're going to say that, that objective morality exists, it must go beyond God. Yeah. I, I agree with you about the impossibility of God's doing that, but uh, don't confuse the divine command theory of ethics that I just offered you with what is called a voluntarist type of divine command theory. There are in the history of Christian thought certain voluntarists like William Ockham, I believe, who thought that God could tomorrow say, declare that adultery and rape would be good and, and love and self-sacrifice would be evil. But I'm not defending that voluntarism. I think you're right about that. Rather, I'm suggesting that God's nature is essentially characterized by properties like justice, goodness, uh, compassion, and so forth. And that therefore his commands flow necessarily out of this divine nature so that it is not true that the commands are arbitrary and willy-nilly. I think that this is a false dilemma that is very often opposed to this type of theory of ethic, uh, but it's a straw man, I think, that's set up. We need to deal seriously with the kind of ethical theory that would have been supported by, say, Anselm or Aquinas or someone, or in our own day, uh, by William Alston. Uh, I think in his book, uh, Perceiving God, if you're interested in that, if you sound like a philosophy student, uh, you would enjoy Alston's uh, attempt to lay this out. Also, Robert Adams, at Yale has done good work on this type of divine command theory. Oh, oh boy, I'm just wool gathering and I'm going to say. So I'll say something arbitrary. Um, <laughs> I want to. I want to put in a plug for a secular account. Uh, I think that uh, that moral objectivity is is a is an awareness that uh, you couldn't do an action without uh, doing wrong. And it uh, doesn't matter if somebody commands it or not, if the awareness is intrinsic. Um, you become aware of it by 
by looking at the the action and then posing it to yourself as a reason for acting and it either compels you or it doesn't. And it compels you, of course, for rational reasons. Um, I'm not suggesting that, that there's a kind of I'm not a voluntarist with respect to, to rational compulsion, but it doesn't strike me that commands are necessarily in the slightest or that they would help. Um, Dr. Craig, you say that you admit that this is not the best of possible worlds. The first question I'd like to ask you is, why couldn't God make the best possible world? That is, a world where everyone freely chose the good. I assume that you're going to say this would be an impossibility, but it's only an impossibility if the omnipotence of God is redefined, not a sheer force of power. If God is omnipotent in an unqualified sense, then it's not an impossibility that God might create a better world than the one we have, and that God has not made a better world can only mean that God is not completely loving or good, and I have to read about the date that God does not exist. However, if the omnipotence of God is redefined not as course of power, but as suffering love, then the debate shifts on to another level. The question is not, does, does God exist given the suffering and evil of the world, but where is God in the midst of human suffering? And that's the second question I'd like to ask you. Dr. Dayton is right on this point that heaven is not an answer to the question. You refer to the power of Jesus, and I'm surprised and disappointed that you do not seem to recognize this as the power of God himself, the crucified God, I'd like to suggest, and not a, a God of sheer coercive power that both you and Dr. Dayton seem to assume. Okay, this is a very thoughtful and well-formulated question. Um, let me make it very clear that uh, I take omnipotence to mean that the only limits on God's power are logical limits, that God can't do logical impossibilities. Now, it is logically impossible to make somebody freely do something. That is as impossible as making a round triangle. Therefore, even though there are logically possible worlds in which everyone always freely does the right thing, God cannot guarantee that those worlds will be actual. Because if he tries to actualize one of those, it may well be the case that the creatures would freely choose to go wrong and would not help to actualize that world. In effect, because we are free, we are co-creators with God of which world is actual. So certainly God could have forced us to choose the right way, but given that he gives us freedom of the will, God cannot guarantee that these kinds of worlds will become actual. And that's why I call them infeasible worlds. They're logically possible, but they're not feasible for God. And uh, a real good book on this would be God, Freedom, and Evil by Alvin Plantinga, who has analyzed this notion that he calls Leibniz's lapse. Uh, Leibniz's lapse was Leibniz's assumption that God could create just any possible world. Now, I do appreciate very much your reminder about God's suffering love, and I felt bad about leaving that out because I, I guess it's just the constraints of, of debate. But if you ask me, where is God in the midst of suffering? I say, look to the cross. On the cross, you see the suffering God. There you see a man, Jesus, who if anyone in the world could complain of the problem of evil, it would be he, because he innocently for the punishment and the sin that we deserve. And so I say that when we are going through hard times, we can meditate on the wounds of Christ, 
what he did for us and his love for us, and that can give us the strength to go through. Okay. Would you like to reply? Uh, okay, just, just a quick remark. Uh, I don't want to say anything about the second question. I think it's going to be an internal theological issue. Uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But as to the first one, I, I mean, I want to agree wholeheartedly with uh, Dr. Craig. Um, there's a great difference between uh, um, omnipotence and uh, and the logically possible worlds which could have meaning but are not actual. But I do think that God could have made us a wee bit nicer, a little bit less, a little bit less vicious. Uh, a little bit higher propensity to in our freedom to, to act well. And uh, I, so I think that the, the fact that God could not create free, free beings who nonetheless always did good, which I think to be correct, um, is, is not a, a sufficient full answer to the problem of evil and world. Okay, um, actually we only have time for one more question, and I think that you're here first. So we'll let you go. Um, yeah, and please, yeah, try and be quick. And Ashes, could you please come forward? I would like to collect those comment cards. Could you sort of please just fold them in half and send them to the aisles and some of the Ashes will collect them. They're the guys with the name tags. And if you do have questions, you can please come down. These guys will be here afterwards. You can talk to them, so anyone else that's left. Go ahead. Um, I have a question about, actually I have a question and a comment. Um, my question is about, um, to Dr. Craig, um, how we can, uh, on, on one hand, say that God is omnipotent and omnis omniscient, and on the other hand, say that we're free. I think that those two ideas are fundamentally at odds with each other. Um, if God is all-powerful uh, and God is all-knowing, chances are, and I think you did say this, that he knows history from the beginning to the end. How then can you possibly say that we make decisions freely of God's will? I think those two points are absolutely inconsistent. And if you are a theist and you believe that God is omnipotent and omniscient, I think you ultimately have to be determined. Um, my second is uh, a comment, and I think for somebody who puts so much emphasis on scientific data, um, the idea that you're a mind-body dualist is very problematic to me. That's all I have to say. I would note that a number of uh, great scientists and philosophers are mind-body dualists, uh, including Sir Karl Popper, who was uh, one of the greatest philosophers of science, and Sir John Eccles, who was a Nobel Prize-winning neurologist. A few years ago, Eccles and Popper collaborated in a book called The Self and Its Brain, in which they defend dualism and interactionism. Uh, also, Roger Penrose, whom I'm sure you would agree is one of the greatest uh, of contemporary scientists has uh, argued against physicalism, so I don't think that's really a remarkable position. On the issue of divine foreknowledge and human freedom, I wrote a little book on this uh, that you might want to look at called The Only Wise God. Uh, it's out of print, so you'd have to get it on interlibrary loan, but I think foreknowledge and freedom are entirely compatible, and I think Dr. Dayton would agree with me on this. The argument that they're not is, is it commits a fallacy of modal logic. It goes like this. Necessarily, if God foreknows X, then X will happen. God foreknows X, therefore necessarily X will happen. And that's just a fallacy of modal logic. All that follows from those two premises is that X will happen. But it doesn't have to happen necessarily. X could fail to happen. But if it did, God would have 
foreknown differently. So that our free actions determine what God foreknows. His foreknowledge does not determine what we freely choose. Well, I'm not a dualist. Um, sorry that. Um, I'm a body. Fat body, but <laughs> substantial body, that's the, that's the word. Um, I think I think dualism is, is uh, extremely problematic, and the fact that Eccles in his old age hasn't put it up is uh, um, you know, not a real big argument for me. Um, as for the, the, the foreknowledge uh, question, I, I, I guess that I think this is a very subtle issue. Um, and I do think that it is a fallacy in moral logic to think that um, the, what God foreknows must happen necessarily. But if it happens at all, it still strikes me that there are some problems. And I have 30 seconds, which I freely give away to all of you. Okay. Um, that's the end of the debate. And if you do have more questions, please come down. These guys will both hang around here for a little while. And there's two tables at the back as well. One of them has some books of Dr. Craig's, and also the Philosophy Club has a table there as well. So please stop by at those. So have a great night.